This week, 50 years after the discovery of an ancient human species, we look at how the fossils sparked a debate that still exists today. The importance of it was that it, it moved the spotlight from Asia to Africa in terms of the origin of the genus Homo. And laying down the foundations of a very complex machine. We want to understand the blueprint whereby we build a brain. Plus, training the immune system to attack cancer. And we'll be featuring our favourite entries to the recent Micro Futures competition. Write a science fiction story in 200 characters or less. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 3rd, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Baker. Paleoanthropologists Louis and Mary Leakey were prepared to suffer for their art. For decades, from the 1930s onwards, they scoured the Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania for ancient human remains. To get there, they had to bump along a primitive patchwork of roads, dealing with little drinking water at times, and even the occasional lion. But it paid off when 50 years ago this month they announced a new human species. Homo habilis strode fully upright and made primitive stone tools. Its Latin name means handyman. Based on these and other traits, Leakey argued that his two-million-year-old toolmaker marked the beginning of a lineage that led right to modern humans. Bernard Wood at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., tells the story of Homo habilis in an essay in Nature. Wood first laid his eyes on the handyman in the 1960s, and he's been piecing together its place in human evolution ever since. Here's Nature reporter Ewan Calloway in conversation with Wood. Where did scientists initially believe that humans and and their genus Homo originated? Because most of the scientists who were thinking about this were European, my guess is that they thought humans evolved in Europe. Darwin, in The Origin of Species, suggested that it would be Africa, and then at the end of the 19th century, there was evidence from Asia. So the first fossil evidence was more consistent with an Asian origin, um, even though Darwin's prediction would be that it would be an African origin. And like a lot of Darwin's predictions, um, he would have been sensible to have bet on it. But initially, in the early 20th century, most people thought that, that humans, that, that, that Homo, emerged outside of Africa. Yes, I think so. And so when Lewis Leakey went to Alderweire Gorge in the early 1930s and when Lewis and Mary Leakey went there for a more extended period in 1935, they were aware that there were these, these very primitive stone artefacts and the conventional wisdom then, as it is for some people now, is that the only, the only people who could have made artefacts belonged to our own genus Homo. So the logic was that if, if the crudest artefacts were in East Africa you should be able to find the fossil evidence of the earliest members of our genus Homo. What were the first signs of Homo habilis? The, the first signs of Homo habilis was a little scrap of jaw and a couple of tooth crowns. And these would have been really interesting and would have probably been what the Leakeys spent their time on it's just that not long after that, Mary Leakey found the, uh, the cranium of what became known as um, Zinjanthropus, this strange creature with a small brain, a, a large flat face, such a dramatic find that I think it put uh, the little jaw and the couple of tooth crowns in the shade. 
But then a year after the Zinge discovery, they started to find the fossils, which were the basis of their announcement that uh, they thought they had found the toolmaker. So these were fossils that had a larger brain and hands and feet that were, they thought, a remarkably modern human-like. So Zinge had a relatively small career as the maker of the, of the stone tools from Olduvai, and um, um, he was replaced in 1964 by Homo habilis as the toolmaker. So what made Homo habilis a human ancestor? They thought that the hand was the sort of hand that was capable of making stone tools. They thought that the, uh, the, uh, the skeleton of the foot was consistent with the creature being a biped, like us. They thought even though the brain was a lot smaller than ours, it was at least on the way to becoming the, uh, the large brain that you see in later members of our genus. You know, it was there, it was a better candidate for belonging to our genus than, uh, than Zinge. You know, they decided that, uh, that this was the earliest member of the genus Homo, the maker of the tools. You've, you've now spent much of your career uh, studying these same fossils, studying Homo habilis. What have you made of it and its place in relation to other humans? It began to strike me that, that Homo habilis in general wasn't as modern human-like as it had been made out to be. And so my prejudice was that, uh, that Homo habilis had some of the features that you see in later members of our genus, but it lacked some important features that, that you would want to see in the earliest member of our genus. So we came to the conclusion that, that, um, that Homo habilis probably wasn't as good a candidate as being the earliest member of our genus as it was made out to be originally. Taking a step back, can you talk about how Homo habilis has upended our view of human evolution over, over the past 50 years? The importance of it was that it, it moved the spotlight from Asia to Africa in terms of the origin of the genus Homo. There are various research problems in human evolution, but the one that really catches the imagination of the public and of, of researchers are the problems of origins. And that, I think, is a, is a quest and a search which is very compelling, and it's continuing now. That was Bernard Wood talking to Ewan Calloway. A Microfuture by Alastair MacLeod. We gather, receiving the voice of a deserted explorer. I have found the lunar colony, she says, across the void. Their logs simply state, we die alone. Eyes downcast, we hear the broadcast end. Coming up, a tattoo-like device that could deliver drugs to patients, and a whale scoops the prize for the deepest dive. That's in the research highlights a little later on. But first, whichever way you look at it, the fight against cancer is a long and difficult one. Many current treatments have horrible side effects and involve subjecting the body to powerful chemicals. But what if, instead, we could use our own immune system to fight cancer? This is an approach called immunotherapy, Initially suggested over a century ago, the first FDA-approved cancer immunotherapy trials started in the early 90s, but had mixed success. 
Now, new techniques are drumming up a lot of excitement. Nature reporter Heidi Ledford has written a feature about the latest advancements, and I caught up with her to get the lowdown. Cancer cells in the body, they're almost like normal cells that have gone rogue. Um, they're growing rapidly, more rapidly than a normal cell would. They're, they're behaving in strange ways, so they, they may be um, expressing proteins that normal cells wouldn't express, for example. And this is one of the reasons why researchers think that maybe you could harness the immune system to fight cancer. The immune system is very good at, at finding foreign cells, like bacteria, for example, and targeting those cells and eliminating them. And a cancer cell, although it originates in your own body, is like a foreign cell in the sense that it's not behaving like a normal cell. The immune system is usually quite good at fighting off infections and, and, and problems within your body. Why does it struggle so much with cancer? The immune system, it's a very powerful killer, really, of cells. And if it were to target your own normal tissues, you'd be in big trouble. So the immune system has several um, checkpoints in place to try to keep it from attacking normal tissues. If it becomes too active, it can do a lot of damage. And unfortunately, cancer cells look just enough like normal tissue that often they, they don't alert the immune system. The immune system doesn't realize that this is something it needs to fight. So we have this really powerful army of cells in our body, but they're just holding back because, you know, they don't want to attack their own self, their own cells. How are people starting to utilise this sort of killer within, as you said in your feature? Sure. Well, one thing to do is to release the checkpoints. So a lot of times people will refer to a class of proteins called checkpoint proteins. They'll refer to them as breaks on the immune system. And if you release those breaks, then the immune system becomes much more active. So there's a class of, of drugs that, that is generating a lot of excitement right now. And those drugs target a particular protein. It's called PD-1. It can activate a, a signaling pathway that keeps immune cells from attacking the cancer. So there are some drugs that will inactivate that pathway and, and release that break and allow the immune system to kill the cancer cells. Why aren't people doing this now? Is it successful in trials? There have been a few hurdles when it comes to developing these kinds of therapies. Um, one, it can be quite dangerous to, to unleash the immune system in its full fury against a whole host of cells. If it starts to attack normal tissue, it can be quite dangerous. Some of the earlier drugs that do release breaks on the immune system in different ways can be quite toxic. So that's, that's one problem. Another problem is that for, for some reason, and, and researchers don't fully understand why, but some patients respond dramatically to these drugs and, and will go into remissions that last for decades in the case of the earliest immunotherapy that we have. Um, but other patients just don't respond at all. And unfortunately, it's the majority of patients. So that's something that doctors would like to improve. There are people that undergo traditional radiotherapy and chemotherapy or surgical approaches that also have remissions that last for 30, 40 years. What makes immunotherapy so much more exciting? So there's a little bit of a difference, I guess. One thing is that these immunotherapies are being used in patients with advanced cancers. You know, if you have a melanoma and, and it is caught early enough and, and um, you know, your doctor can remove that melanoma before it has spread, you have a very good chance that you will never see that cancer again. But for patients for whom the cancer has already spread to other targets in the body, depending on the kind of cancer, and if we take melanoma, for example, the average life expectancy there is, is heartbreakingly short. It's, it's typically um, less than a year for those patients. So, so we're looking at very serious, very advanced cancers where we're seeing these dramatic responses. These immunotherapy responses are certainly in the early stages now. How's the future looking for, for developing these, these techniques? 
Well, certainly, you know, again, with the PD-1 drugs, people are very excited about those. There's another class of, of immunotherapy that involves actually removing immune cells called T cells from a patient's body and then engineering those cells so that they recognize a specific protein that might be expressed by a cancer cell and then putting them back into the patient's body. Um, and that kind of technique is one that also seems like it may be very powerful. It's only been used in, in small clinical trials thus far. Um, but it shows a lot of promise. And that one is a, t- is a technique that's actually been held back um, probably more than anything by the fact that it's technically quite challenging to do. Do you think that immunotherapy could ever replace things like chemotherapy and radiotherapy as a cancer treatment, or is it always just going to be one of the tools in our cancer-fighting tool belt? There are certainly some who think that this is going to be a very significant uh, tool in the toolbox to fight cancer, and there's some people who are projecting that it will be used, you know, in the next um, decade or two is going to become a a key component of of treatment for something like 60% of all advanced cancers. So these are cancers that have spread to other sites in the body. Um, So certainly people think it's going to be very crucial at that stage. Moving a treatment like this from um, the advanced setting into earlier stage cancers is something that I think a lot of people would be very interested in, but it's something that takes longer to do. Um, People are willing to take more risks in patients with advanced cancers that are more deadly. That was Heidi Ledford. You can read her feature at nature.com forward slash news. A microfuture by the Mole Trap Collective. Years of cheap computer time allowed the TK Labs GeneCoin project to decode all the junk DNA in the human genome. Now, a lone tech sees the output flashing on the screen, intentionally left blank. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Thea Cunningham. A wearable device as thin as a temporary tattoo can release drugs into the wearer's skin on demand. Wearable electronics are an attractive alternative to bulky straps or pads. Researchers in South Korea put layers of stretchy nanomaterials onto an elastic material designed to mimic soft, flexible skin. The nanomaterials sense temperature and strain, store data, heat up and carry drugs. The flexible device measured simulated hand tremors and delivered drugs through the skin when the tiny sensors got hot. The system uses a wired connection to supply power and transfer data, but the team hopes to develop a wireless version. They say it could be used to measure tremors in Parkinson's disease patients and deliver drugs in response. Read more in Nature Nanotechnology. The Cuvier's beaked whale has dived into the record books, setting a new record for the deepest ever dive by a mammal. The beaked whale family are exceptional divers, but their penchant for diving far from shore makes them difficult to study. Researchers in the US attached satellite tags to eight Cuvier's beaked whales. They collected thousands of hours of data on the whale's movements off the California coast. One whale was in dive for nearly two and a half hours, nearly 20 minutes longer than the previous deep diving record holder, the southern elephant seal. Another whale beat the seal's record depth by more than 600 metres. The behaviour might not be typical for the species. Heavy naval sonar use in the region could have disturbed the whales, the team say. Find that paper in PLOS One. A Microfuture by Josie's Ho. For sale, one cat litter box, never used. 
or not. Contact E. Schrodinger. Shortly, news reporter Lizzie Gibney will be joining us for the news chat and we're off to Mars. First, though, we've all got one. We use it 24-7. It's wickedly complicated. No, not your laptop, your brain. Scientists exploring human brain function have a lot of different lines of attack. They can study the whole brain as it thinks, with brain scanning. They can draw wiring diagrams, connectomes. They can peer at individual cells in a Petri dish. Or they can do what Ed Lean and his team at the Allen Brain Institute in Seattle have been doing and look at genes. Like any well-designed recipe, making a brain requires ingredients to be added in the right amount, in the right place, at the right time. The resulting pattern of gene expression is called the transcriptome. The Allen Brain Institute has built brain transcriptomes before, for the mouse brain and the adult human brain. Now they've turned their attention to the prenatal human brain, using donated brains from foetuses between 15 and 21 weeks old. Here's Ed Lean with more. From a developmental biology point of view, this is really when we're setting up the whole system. And in particular, this period of time is when we're beginning to establish the neocortex, uh, which is responsible for many of our most distinctive cognitive features. Uh, So by studying this early period of time, we can really understand how genes drive the generation of different types of neurons that ultimately form our functional circuits, as well as their maturational processes in which they make connections and form these circuits. And what you have here is a map of... um a map of the brain onto which you've superimposed which genes are active at what times and in what areas. That's correct. And that that sounds like an overwhelming amount of data in in quite a few dimensions. How do you guys get your head around this? (laughs) Well, on the one hand, our our aim is to create this very high information content, high-value data set, uh, so that the whole community can capitalise on it. We can't possibly um, mine all of this data ourselves, nor is that the intent. And what drives you, just on a, on a personal level, I suppose, to make the atlases rather than be one of the people who takes the atlases and sort of runs with it? <laughs> well, I think I'm, I'm in a fabulous position here where uh, I have the ability to both take my experience as a developmental biologist and apply it uh, so that we can create these resources. Uh, but then also I sit on the back end and, and uh, have the luxury of being able to analyze these data in great detail Uh, for areas of my own particular interest. In one case, we took genes associated with autism. What we were able to do is to take these genes and say, is there a place where these genes tend to be enriched in space and time in the developing brain and see if there's sort of a common locus of action? And in fact, we did find a, a locus of action. There seemed to be enriched in the young excitatory neurons that have just been generated in the cortex. So this, of course, doesn't really tell us a mechanism, but it tells us where we perhaps should look. Uh, And in this particular case, really sort of points to the idea that uh, some of the roots of autism may be in this particular process happening prenatally. Well, and that's a very important point, isn't it? Because autism won't be the only condition where you see the roots prenatally, even for something like schizophrenia that develops in perhaps teenagehood or even adulthood. That's exactly right. And I, I think... I think there's great hope, perhaps, that we could uh, look earlier and begin to find a commonality, to begin to find sort of a common origin where many genes could have a small impact, but if they impact the same process, you could see how they might lead to a common outcome. And how many brains was it necessary to procure to be able to do this kind of study? Well, in this case, we, uh, we were able to obtain four 
very intact, high-quality brains uh, that span the period between 15 and 21 post-conceptual weeks in the second trimester. Uh, this is a very small number of specimens. What was quite um, appealing is that we found a lot of commonality among even these small number of specimens, which is something which we've also found in the adult brain, uh, where you can really see sort of a core conserved molecular machinery across individuals, even with a very small number of individuals. So picture yourself in a decade's time. Um, here, the catalogues that you're producing are only one type of information that a neuroscientist could use to get at some of the questions that they're asking. I mean, what do you hope might be the ultimate use of, of something like this? Well, I think this is the beginning. I, I think really we want to understand the blueprint whereby we build a brain. And this is sort of one step in that direction where we can begin to have a map of how genes are driving this process. We need to be pushing down to the level of individual cells and cell types and then how those types uh, subsequently make functional circuits so we can begin to understand how information is actually processed in these. This is a step in that direction, but really just a beginning. That was Ed Lean at Seattle's Allen Brain Institute. A Microfuture by Catherine Raztovsky. I pass your empty chair every day. Across the room sits the computer, your voice, your face locked inside. I ache to bring you to life, but fear keeps me in my chair. What if you say no? Finally this week, it's the news chat as usual, and uh, Lizzie Gibney joins us. She's a news reporter who this week has written about ExoMars. This is a mission. That's right. It's a mission going to Mars, as it might well sound like, and it's the European Space Agency, and they're working together with the Russian Federal Space Agency, Roscosmos, and this is going to launch in 2018, and all being well, it will land in 2019 on Mars. And now the big question is, where will it land? Before we get talking about the uh, holiday destination of choice, um, could you just refresh our memory on what else is currently roaming around Mars? So we currently have NASA's got Curiosity, which is up there, which is part of the Mars Science Laboratory. Um, and that's been up there um, for since 2012, I think, and that's in the Gale Crater. Um, and then we also have a couple of older um, Mars missions also from NASA. So Opportunity is doing an amazing job. It's been up there for, I think, 10 years. It recently had its anniversary and still collecting data. So um, NASA's got an awful lot of experience in sending rovers to Mars and there are a few uh, that are still up there. But, but ExoMars will be a first for Europe. Um, if, if anyone remembers Beagle 2, it was a bit of a, bit of a disaster, unfortunately, when it um, landed on Christmas Day 2003 and we never heard from it again. So this is a this is quite a big deal for for Europe and for Russia, who again hasn't had um, a rover land there since, I think, the 70s. And the aim of this mission, ExoMars, is to do the evocative search for life. Absolutely. So while that's almost been the goal for most, they're all related to that for most of the rovers, but Curiosity is more looking for habitable areas on Mars. It's doing some of the background work. Um, ExoMars is really saying, OK, now we've done a lot of the groundwork. We want to find evidence for life. And uh, in front of us, we have a beautiful map, which is Mars, as you might envision, the Earth, just imagine a sort of global map. And here on the, on the map, there's details of where past rovers have landed, where the elevation is best. Where will ExoMars uh, propose to land? 
Right. So there are a few constraints on XMRs. Some of them are around its engineering, what it is physically able to do and where we need to land it. And some are about where to go for the best science. So on the engineering side, it has to be pretty low lying. So the way in which the rover will eventually land on the planet is to come in in a kind of ballistic trajectory and um, it'll have parachutes slowing it down, a heat shield. um, But it still comes in rather fast. And so it needs to travel for as long as possible through the atmosphere. That means it has to be really low lying where it eventually lands. Because it's also going to be run by solar power, once it gets there, it needs to be quite near to the equator. So you can rule out all of the the far north and far south. Um, And then within that also, we want to have an area that's relatively safe for it to land in. So as few boulders as possible, as few craters. The engineers would really like it to land in a very, very boring place. Now, the problem with that is the scientists want to land it somewhere scientifically interesting. And and it can only travel a couple of kilometres in total in its whole lifetime. So it has to be able to land somewhere in this enormous area which, as we say in the article, is uh, almost the size of, of London, Greater London. Um, it's pretty huge, but it, wherever it lands within that, it has to be never too far from something that's really interesting. Those things that are really interesting, what are they exactly? Some of these sites proposed, have uh, they have different interesting features about them. Absolutely. So what we're looking for is this evidence of life. Now, this will be around 3.6 billion years ago on Mars. Obviously, today, Mars is not a particularly habitable place. So what we're looking for, they they tend to fall into two categories. Either there are places where there are lots of wet sediments and clays, which we can tell that they have very interesting chemistry that would have have harboured perhaps life uh, that long ago from from some of the instruments that we have up on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. So that's going around Mars at the moment. So we either are looking at the chemistry and thinking, oh, that looks like... There's some really interesting stuff down there. Or we're using other images and we are saying that they've got really fantastic um, morphology. There may have been deltas, rivers, lakes, oceans. And that's the kind of place that would have the fine sediment deposits that also would be very good for preserving the life. Because obviously that's 3.6 billion years ago we're talking about. There's been a lot happening on Mars since then and the UV rays um, and the harsh surfacing conditions would be likely to get rid of any life that, that was otherwise created. So the idea is because ExoMars is blinged up with this digger, it can dig you know, a couple of metres maybe even below the surface to try and find evidence. That's right. So ExoMars can dig down to two metres and it's got a pretty solid drill. Uh, it can even drill through marble, I heard. Um, so fingers crossed what will happen is it will it'll bring up a sample from a few metres down beneath the surface where the environment has been preserved, where we've from the surface we can tell there likely to be nice sediments, interesting chemistry, and bring up a sample that it'll then test in its own little lab on board. Now, um, you said earlier there are four proposed, there's a shortlist basically of four sites so far with with exotic names like Oxia Planum and Hippanis Vallis. Uh, And we won't know till June if that's the formal shortlist. When does the final decision then get made? Exactly. So this is, there's the Landing Site Selection Working Group who um, has been looking at these different sites. And so the recommendations we've had today was from a big workshop with lots of scientists coming together to kind of thrash out the pros and cons of each. Um, That will now be used to make the formal shortlist, which we'll hear about in June. And then by 2016, the committee are going to make their recommendation to ESA and Roscosmos, who will then make a, a final, final call on it probably the year before launch in 2017. That is some vacation planning. Um, Lizzie, thank you very much. Thank you. Remember, you can read that story and more at nature.com news. That's all from us this week. Join us next time when we'll have the results of a giant experiment to reflood a dry delta. And before we go, here to play us out is the last of our pick of micro-futures. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Baker. A Micro Future by John Gilby. 
The prof smiled. I've isolated the plague vector. Now we can kill it. I sighed with relief. I'll tell the others. He held my arm as I turned away. Hang on, old chap. Amy, pass me the syringe. <laughs>